In the bonus room, I asked Larry to talk about his career, beginning with his teachers and then 33 years as principal trombone with the Utah Symphony and now his position as professor of trombone at the Eastman School of Music. Well, let's talk about your career, if you don't mind. Sure. Okay. You, I know, I know that you went to uh, University of Southern California, and you studied with Terry Cravens, uh, the one and only Terry Cravens, a, a good friend of, of both of us. Were you born and raised in in Los Angeles or California? I was. My um, my parents. I grew up in North Hollywood. Oh, okay. And um, if you know where the corner of Laurel Canyon and Van Owen is, that's about where I grew up. I used to live on Van Owen, actually, yeah. <laughs> in 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 Van Nuys, but yeah. Right. So, so and so you that was uh, then you went as a freshman going to USC. Well, yeah, my my parents were incredibly supportive of me and music, even though they were not musicians, um, and uh, it was tough to afford lessons. But I studied with some great teachers. Or, as an elementary school kid, I studied with Harold Diner, who uh, was a studio player. I didn't know at the time, but I stayed in touch with him and met up with him later in my life, like like about 10 years ago. And he also taught Ira Nepis, a, 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 a freelance player in L.A., and we went and had lunch with him. And he, he had stories about playing I'm Getting Sentimental when Tommy Dorsey was there and stuff like that. There was just, like, wow. incredible stories. And... Um, and then I studied with a guy named Norman Bernstein, who was uh, a wonderful player and teacher. And then I went to the Cal Arts Youth Program, and um, I got a scholarship to go to this program, and it was fantastic. They taught us theory and history, and Tommy Johnson was my brass quintet coach when I was oh, in the eighth grade. It doesn't get better than that. <laughs> and that was eighth grade. Wow. Okay. Tommy remained a friend and a mentor to me in, through his entire life. And yeah. I'll never forget what he did. And then he arranged for me to take lessons with Byron Peebles, who was just the nicest person in the world and a great teacher, never charged me for a lesson. Such a gentleman. He Such was. A gentleman. And uh, he got me into USC. So I studied with Marsteller my 12th grade year. And then I was at USC studying with Robert Marsteller, which was a dream come true. That's great. I, I remember Byron Peoples when I was a student at UCLA, you know, and, and all these people were my heroes. And he was playing first in the LA Philharmonic, and, and he would I'd ask him questions when, I don't know, I think the LA Philharmonic recorded in Royce Hall at uh, in those days with Zubin Mehta. And, and I'd just ask him question after question because he had played with Chicago Symphony. And, and um, you know, I was like a little kid looking up to... to you know, his baseball hero or something. And, and he was just the nicest guy, you know, always was actually, even later on. He sure was. A real gentleman. Sure yeah. was, yeah. And uh, and then I went I went to USC and I did my bachelor in music education, but I didn't, I didn't finish the music ed part of it uh, for a couple of reasons. I think I was one unit short, but uh, I got a bachelor degree and then I went on to do my master's at USC. And then did you get the Utah job right after that? I went to University of Michigan. You oh, know, and that's right. And you studied with Dennis Smith? I did. Yeah. Oh, another okay. L.A. guy. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you the truth. I mean, this is a funny story, but um, I did my first audition. It was the Kansas City Philharmonic and a Kansas City Symphony at the time. And um, I, I they had four finalists there and I was one of them but it's like if the three finalists were up here I was like down here and the three finalists were Alan Barnhill and John Daly 
and um, um, Mike Powell. And Mike Powell won the job, and John uh -huh. Daly went on to get Denver, and and uh, Alan right. went on to get uh, Houston. And um, but the funny thing is, I got home from there. And I said, I know I need to practice more. I just know I need to practice more. And Dennis Smith was offering a, me a TA ship if I go to University of Michigan. So I told her, brother, I said, do you want to go to Michigan? She said, no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I said, please. She said, no. But I talked her into going. So um, she went with me and, and we got married. We went to Michigan and uh, she was in the graduate string quartet and I was just practicing. And that's when I got the Utah job is when I was at Michigan. Okay. Which um, Dennis Smith had played first with the Utah Symphony. Uh, he did. In fact, he's the tenor tuba player on the Mahler 7th recording when Utah did their Mahler cycle. Oh, Way he is. Back. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know, I played just, just uh, quickly. I, I played for two years with the Utah Symphony under Abravanel. And the first year that I came, they would always do two, two in those days, two weeks of recording because they had a contract with um, Vanguard Records, I think it was, where they did all the Mahler symphonies and all of that. And my first year, they record the, re recorded the complete orchestral works of Grieg which for a brass player is not that interesting. The year before I came, in two weeks, they recorded Mahler's first, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Oh, my gosh. And I, and I missed recording those by a year. Oh, gosh. Oh, that's incredible. That would have been incredible. so much fun. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, they had that contract when I got there, too, so we did a lot of recordings. We did a whole series of movie music recordings. And, was uh, was Abravanel the conductor, or had he left? He left. Very John Cogent was the music director. Oh, he was okay. Yeah, very nice man too. Yeah. And but Abravanel was always around. He was the maestro, and he had this seat right above the stage. Oh, Everybody, okay. like people, like seemed like the audience. They'd look at him before they clap just to make sure it was okay. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So he was something. And so yeah. I, I know that when you were in Utah, in addition to playing first in the orchestra, you premiered at least one solo piece, one concerto. Yeah, I did a, a few of them, actually. You did the Rouse, right? I did that the Rouse. Alessi had premiered, which is a really tough piece. Great piece, but tough. That, I think, is one of the greatest pieces ever written for trombone. Like, I remember when, when they were going to, when they were deciding whether to do it, it was for the ITF who was going to be there at the time. And I was already scheduled to do a concerto. And so the ITF people came to meet with the arts administrator to decide what we were going to play. And I had to go to this meeting. And I was hearing rumblings. They wanted me to do the rouse. And I said to Roberta, I said, um, I'm not going to do the rouse. So, you know, mark my words. It's just too hard. I'm too old. And uh, I came home from that meeting. She said, so what do you play? I said, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> So did <laughs> I did it, but I premiered Henry Walking's concerto, which was a crossover piece. It has all this, you know, it's a fantastic piece of music and it has a, um, a circuit scherzo and a, a Baroque movement, all these movements that pertain to the trombone. And then um, I premiered Bill Reichenbach's Streets of Paris um, for Wind Ensemble, which was a good piece. And then a great piece, actually, it's just beautiful. And then we did with Utah, we did the Ellen's Willett Concerto, and Jay Friedman had commissioned it with Chicago, and we did the second performance of it. Oh, okay. 
So, yeah, so you're doing soloing in the same time. And I remember we played together several times uh, with the Summit Brass, which for was always years. fun. Yeah, for years. So, and that was great. And then you got, how long, how long actually were you in the Utah Symphony? I'm going to date myself here. 33 years. 33 years. Yeah. Wow. I was 24 when we started, when I started. I mean, I know everybody uh -huh. says that as a joke, but that's the truth. I was 24 when we started. Mm -hmm. And uh, Roberta and I both got the job, and and I wasn't going to go. We were at the Teton Festival, and I remember saying to people, "What's in Utah?" And they said, "You're crazy if you don't go." So we went. We said we were going to stay a year, and we just loved it there. And we left our stuff in Michigan, thinking we'd go back to Michigan after, uh -huh. and we never did. We just stayed there. Brought up three kids, born, raised, grown, left the house, and it was just great. You know, it was a wonderful place. Yeah, Salt Lake, I think, is my favorite city, actually, in the whole world. Really, just a wonderful place, I think. Tough to leave. Yeah. But you did, and so you went to Eastman. And the audition for Eastman was in 2013. Okay. And uh, in November. So 2014, I did recitals. Oh, this is another thing. I did a bunch of recitals before I came here to try and encourage students to come here. I went to IU and Michigan and Ball State. I went to all these different colleges oh, uh -huh. and did all the recitals. And I had dystonia then, but I didn't know it. I was having trouble taking a breath, but I really wasn't having trouble playing. Now that I think about it, the recitals were okay. I, I really was having a lot of trouble taking a breath. But once I get the breath in my body, I could play fine. So, And then I started here in the fall of 14, and that's when then we kind of covered from there. So what was your audition like for Eastman? I, I assume you'd you would have to have a meeting with faculty and teach a couple of students or it's do a master class? All of the above. It's a uh -huh. it's an incredible experience. So I got here, it was Thanksgiving weekend, and I got here Sunday night and rehearsed with piano. A pianist I still work with, Priscilla Ewan is her name, and she's she still works with all my students, and she was my accompanist when I first got here. First person I met was her. Wow. Great. And um, so we played um, the recital first thing in the morning. It was 9 o'clock in the morning. So it was very intense. And, you know, you come into Eastman, it's this old, very elegant place, you know, Kodak Hall in the Eastman Theater. There's nothing quite like it, you know. And then you go into the building, and the picture of all the faculty members are on the walls, and it's just very intimidating. And uh, the halls are just this old elegance, you know. And I started playing my recital. And I, I was in a hall. And I thought, hmm, this sounds really good in here. I could, I could play in here all the time. And then um, um, I did an excerpt thing. And then I did a master class. And then I had the guest conduct the trombone choir. So there were all these different components of the audition. And... I don't know. Do you know who Tim Higgins is, the trombone player in San Francisco? Just by name. I've never met him, but he sounds great. I mean, he's evidently he wrote a trombone, trombone concerto that he did with San Francisco recently that I guess is really a strong piece. Yeah, he's just amazing on all levels, but he's also a great Actually, arranger. and I, I just heard a quote from him, too, um, <laughs> just about a week ago. This is a great quote. Um, the San Francisco Symphony Brass Section did a concert, and... One of the pieces was by John Mackey, who who does a lot of writing for Wind Ensemble, really great, great composer. And also for like ense Wind Ensembles of like 
you know, high school and some of the times junior high, you know, and and he evidently he got in front of he was just thrilled that they sounded so great. And he got in front of the brass section and said something like, wow, you know, I've, this is so great. I mean, I'm so used to hearing um, 10th graders, you know, or I'm so used to hearing seventh graders or something. Evidently, Tim Higgins said, well, we can do that, too, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so that's that's about all I know of Tim Higgins. That everything is positive. Yeah, he's he's just fantastic, and he's a great arranger. And yes, right. I called him and I said, "Do you have something hot off the press that I could use for my Eastman audition that that nobody's ever played before, so that these players will be so kind of preoccupied with reading the music that they they won't look at the conductor." <laughs> <laughs> so he sent me a piece of music and they passed it out you know and i thought yeah i've i've nailed this they're going to be so they won't even look at me right and i went yeah. to give the downbeat and there were 27 sets of eyeballs just right on me like they didn't care they just <laughs> oh man there's another plan foiled you know yeah right, right. <laughs> but so i conducted the trombone choir and then i had all these meetings with different different groups of people. The one was the most fascinating is you get to meet with the students without anybody there. And that oh, may have been okay. the most intimidating is to meet with the students, you know? What did they ask you or what did they want to talk about? They wanted to get right into the guts of like, you know, what are your philosophies on teaching? How do you teach? How do you deal with a student that does this or that? I mean, they were very direct questions, much more pointed than I got from other faculty. Mm -hmm. And and were those just trombone students or all brass students? All trombone students. Okay. Yeah. So it was a great experience. My audition was a great experience. I came home, I thought, if I don't get this job, I just had the greatest time. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, tell me about your teaching philosophy. I mean, if somebody asked me what's your teaching philosophy, I would not really know what to say. Outside of trying to help somebody. Right. I'll tell you, I, I don't have a philosophy now that's different than it was before, but I have really honed what I do and prioritize what I do in teaching. It's kind of funny. Um, but um, I just believe that the, that the embouchure and the tongue need to be, need to be de-emphasized and how you use your air needs to be emphasized. And I really put it into practice when I teach more than than I think you could even imagine when when I'm teaching students, I I mean, okay, so how can I so there you're Steph Curry, you're on the basketball court, right? You're 30 feet from the basket, you got these two guys, they're seven feet tall, these huge hands, four hands are in front of you, right? And you you, you jump to make your jump shot from 30 feet. You're falling away as you shoot, and then you let the ball go. And when the ball goes through the basket, it doesn't like hit the rim. It just goes straight through the middle of the net. And how did he do that? I mean, he's not thinking about, I mean, this is a whole right brain, left brain thing. You know what I mean? And I'm trying to teach the students that, you know, don't think about your embouchure. Let that happen. And uh, we put demands on them to play really high and really low and play all the time, develop a lot of endurance. But but just focus on your air, not focus on the other things. And it's amazing how they respond to that. And I believe that that's, if you're going to, you know, I, I think that's kind of, I, I hate to say this because I, I don't even know if it's right, but 
I think it's kind of a, a an anti-Dystonia kind of an approach, you know? It's just um, to be kind of free-blowing and just, just let things go. I'll tell you, you know, I play duets with my students all the time now. I play trios. I don't know if I loved to play before I got hit with all this. I probably did, but I really love to play now, and I just can't stop. I mean... One of these days, one of them's come in and is going to say, "Enough with the duets already. Can I play my solo for you?" <laughs> uh-huh. That's great, it's though. Like, yeah, it's uh, sometimes you have to lose something to really know how much it means to you, right? And that's you know that's that's the the difficult thing I think what we were talking about earlier about losing a piece of yourself with dystonia or all of yourself with dystonia that your whole life is wrapped up into something, but when we're doing something that is so beautiful and something that we're totally passionate about and you know you could go to work in in another job and not particularly like it but if you're playing in a symphony orchestra every week you're going to work with Mahler or Brahms or Bach or Tchaikovsky or or geniuses like that um i mean we're truly blessed i think as as musicians and and some of the times to realize well, one aspect of that, or maybe the most important aspect of that, I'm no longer going to have. I, I would just think that would be totally devastating. It, it is totally devastating. And um, I don't know that I, I handle it especially well, but I will say that the whole experience, I mean, in sometimes I feel like, you know, do I have P- PTSD from like being in New York for three months during a pandemic and going through all these brain surgeries and having the brain bleed and all this stuff. And um, I'm just kind of looking ahead now, you know, not looking back. I'm just looking ahead and just kind of, kind of going forward with everything. But um, I will say what I learned from it, looking back at my teachers, they were so, so good. They were so smart and so insightful. Like Marsteller was right about, Robert Marsteller was right about not, not buzzing and jimmy stamp was right about buzzing and arnold jacobs was right when he used to tell me no you're blowing from the mouthpiece out the horn you're not blowing to the mouthpiece i mean all these guys all the teachers i had dennis smith who would say damn it just get up there and blow you know (laughs) you remember (laughs) him i can just see him yeah i can just see him saying that yeah it's it's they were all so right, and they all gave me such good advice. I just, uh, um, I have a new respect for for them, you know. And um, when I think about the time that they, like Tommy Johnson, spending the time with me when he was so busy, and I mean, they were just uh, good people, you know. So yes. I'm, I'm yeah, very glad, true. you know. Well, if somebody's listening to this interview who has just been diagnosed with dystonia or struggling with dystonia or is just about to discover they're struggling and they're just about to discover that they have dystonia. Is there any, I don't know if I'd say advice, but any thoughts you might have for them? This is, this is what I wanted to get through in the interview. And yet, I don't know what to say now when you when you say it that way. Um, there's there's not a lot out there. That's why you feel so alone is because they can diagnose that you have dystonia, 
but they're not offering you any cures. And you're going to go to different people and different people will, will give you conflicting advice. You know, one person will say, oh, you got to buzz more. Well, I can tell you that's not going to do it. But then they say, oh, you know, relax your office, just use more air. But as you, if you really have a really solid case of dystonia, as you try to do that, the, your brain will start to close your embouchure more because somehow there's a malfunction that's caused your brain to want to close that, you know? So, um, it's just, it's very difficult. I don't know. I think, I think I would, um, I would look at the options if you are, um, in that position. Um, I guess, I guess going to Farius, uh, Joaquin Farius would be one way to kind of get a handle on where you're going. Because if you do his exercises and you get worse, you kind of have to look at it that, you know, there may not be an answer for you because he helped some people and he has a real clear method. And um, Farius has a, a platform online and you can do these exercises. If there's a psychological or emotional or technical reason that you have dystonia he'll probably get to it and is that does he do just embouchure dystonia or all types of musical dystonia he does all types of dystonia period okay and he only does the embouchure dystonia classes uh, dystonia classes twice a year i think okay but, and i i hope that um after we finish this interview you can send a couple of links and we can put these links on your podcast site so that people can access those if they need to. Absolutely. I'll absolutely do that. Okay. And I, I would also think, um, I just get this impression that it would probably be easy for somebody who, who, has, who has dystonia to think, somehow this is my fault. Somehow I'm doing something wrong, um, or I'm not a good person, or maybe I'm exaggerating that, but just that there's a lot of self-doubt that's involved in going through this process and somehow you have to find a way to get around that. It's funny. You get this kind of help from the most unlikely sources. I went to a speech therapist hoping that she could help me talk because I couldn't speak. And she has seen my dystonia before. And see, the thing is, people have seen it. It's just it's, it's not that common, but she had seen it maybe five or six times in her career. And the neurosurgeon had seen it before, so he knew that it could help. You know, not musicians, but just oral mandibular dystonia, which was that manifested like mine did. But this speech therapist stopped once in the middle of a session. She said, you know, this isn't your fault. And it just kind of stunned me because in the back of my mind, I wondered, Am I crazy? Is it the way I am that's brought this on? Is it the, you know, intense attitude? Or is, is there something about me and who I am that made this happen to me? And when she said that, it stopped me in my tracks. I didn't know what to say. I said, you know, I really appreciate you saying that because I really don't know. She said, I promise you, there's nothing you did or nothing about who you are that made this happen. And she just, yeah. that was just out of the blue. And I thought that a lot because it really helped me. But she was the only one that said that to me. It was a speech therapist, not, you know, not the neurologist or anything like that. Right, right. Larry, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to, to do this interview. I hope it maybe can help somebody or 
at the very least very interesting but i but i hope that if somebody's listening to this with dystonia it will give them some ideas i hope i hope so and you've had a very courageous journey it certainly <laughs> seems to me or a crazy journey one or the other <laughs> well, yeah, yeah as brass players we all have crazy journeys that's yeah. for sure mm. well tony so, it's been a pleasure to talk with you good luck it sounds like it's just getting better and better it is it is it's getting i'm i'm assuming that i'm going to be speaking normally in the next couple of months although i mean i know that you don't hear it but i there's it feels it and um i'm looking forward i've got uh, recitals and master classes scheduled uh for next year and uh, we'll see what it brings <laughs>